Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 244. Episode 244 of the podcast. I'm your host, Douglas Wilson. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming. So the topic I wanted to talk about today was Darwinian racism. And I don't want to talk about uh, the topic so much as talk about my right to talk about the topic. Um, Many people think that if you say, well, you know, Darwinism is inherently racist and Darwin was a racist and all the early Darwinians were racists. Um, The answer is, yes, but we repudiate that now. Yes, we know better now. Uh, Your argument is invalid. Um, And the issue is not, you know, you you can rummage around in history and find people who who were racist or had some other objectionable um, um, belief of theirs, and then associate it or tie it to some other belief that they had, uh, even if those two beliefs had um, um, nothing to do with each other. Let's say, uh, let's say a thinker six hundred years ago believed that blacks were inferior, and he also believed that the uh, that every this the stars and the planets the, the the sun goes around the earth he was a, he was a geocentrist well his racism and his geocentrism are not really connected to each other they they happen to occupy the same head but there's no logical connection between the two the thing that i want to argue is that darwinism it, that you find um the possibility of uh, racial supremacy embedded in the theory itself. So, if uh, now a consistent uh, a consistent materialist who said, "Look, there is no such thing as evolutionary progress. There's simply change." Um, that person could be is exempted from my criticism. But overwhelmingly, evolutionists talk about. Uh, evolutionary development or evolutionary progress or increasing adaptation. They, they've, um, they've got a value system that is uh, deeply connected to this idea. So as we uh, grow from a, as we grow and develop from a single celled organism up to the giraffe or up to the human being, um, it's pretty hard to avoid the idea that there's been some sort of development, developmental improvement. So um, you've got this little single-celled organism swimming around in a pond, and that's all it does, uh, and that's it. That's it. And then you have someone at the other end of the evolutionary uh, chain playing, uh, a, playing on a violin flawlessly in Carnegie, Carnegie Hall. Um, after years of training, it's it. You look at that and say, "Man, that's this is more advanced. This this person who's playing the violin is more developed, more advanced, more sophisticated, farther along." Right now, you could be consistent and say that's just as absurd as the amoeba, the 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 pond dwelling amoeba. That's just as uh, worthless that's doesn't matter in the long run so you could be a, a total materialistic cynic and sidestep my criticism here 
But if you believe in progress, okay, let's, let's say if you believe in evolutionary progress at all, then you've got to allow for the fact that some life forms get left behind and some go on. Some life forms catch the train and go on to the next town. Other life forms don't catch the train and don't go on. So, so if you have a, um, if you have human beings on the one hand, and let's say chimps on the other, and let's say we're going to trace their, uh, their lineage back to the missing link, uh, a common ancestor of the chimps and the human beings, uh, it's hard to avoid the, uh, conclusion that the chimps missed that particular train of advancement, right? And if someone said, well, human beings are, are superior um, in their capacities to, to those of chimps, um, he's not going to lose his job yet. <laughs> at, some, at some point, he's going to lose his job for saying that sort of thing. But right now, it's still okay to say that human beings are far advanced over other primates. Okay? Now... But what about intermediate forms? What about in-between forms? How did we get from um, a primate that everybody would acknowledge is not as sophisticated as a, as a human being? Did we get there in one leap? Well, no. Um, we're, not, we're not doing the punctuated equilibrium, equilibrium thing of Stephen Jay Gould. We're not, we don't have hopeful monsters, right? We're, this is a gradual process. And the gradual process occupies millions of years. And as if you're halfway between that primate, primate that we descended from and where we are now, are we superior to that halfway creature? How about, uh, in, in other words, whenever you, however far you go back, when you get to the point that there's been an evolutionary step forward, just the idea of forward, just the idea of evolutionary progress means that you are committed to biological superiority of one race over another. Okay, with me? You're committed to it. Now, um, if you, the, and the only way off the hook is to, uh, is to abandon your race, uh, abandon your, oh, okay, you can abandon everything, abandon your racism and your evolution. You can uh, drop the theory of evolution. That's one way you can do it. Or the other is you can drop any idea of developmental progress at all. There's no such thing as advance. So if there's a nuclear war and the only creatures that survive are the cockroaches and they're three feet long, the nihilistic evolutionists would have to say, well, survival happened, and that's all good. Always will be God. Continuing on with the podcast, episode 244, um, the next word in our hamartiology lexicon is impipto. Impipto. E-M-P-I-P-T-O. Impipto. And it means to fall. In some of its uses, it doesn't have a negative moral connotation. But in other settings, it does. So if you fall among thieves or, you know, the, there's just the physical falling or the physical happenstance, and that doesn't have a moral component. But there are other uses of the word impipto that do have a moral component. We find three uses of the word in 1 Timothy that fall into this category. 
The first two are found in the, in the third chapter of 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. There it is. He fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach. There it is again. Lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. 1 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. In this passage, a a prospective minister or elder can fall into the hands of the devil in two different ways. If he is lifted up with pride, having been a hastily ordained neophyte, and that's the Greek word underneath, neophyte, he's a hastily ordained neophyte, then he falls into the condemnation of the devil. William Tyndall, incidentally, translated that Greek word neophyte with the phrase young scholar. Don't don't ordain a young scholar. And if he fails to maintain a good reputation with the outsiders, then he falls into reproach and the snare of the devil. So then, an ordained man, an uh, an ordinant, uh, can fail by succeeding, and he can fail by failing. So, he can fall into the reproach of outsiders through some scandal, some problem that way, or he can fail by not failing and getting full of himself and becoming puffed up and proud. So watch out, whether to the right or left. The devil can undo you when you succeed. The devil can undo you when you fail. The next instance of a moral fall is found a few chapters later, and it is a warning given to those who are ambitious to be rich. 1 Timothy 6.9 But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Okay, those who want to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Now, it's not the riches so much as it is the intense desire to have them. I've got to have them. Now, the saying goes, and I think it's quite true, God doesn't mind his people having money. He minds money having his people. If you really want to have riches and you've got to have them, then that means they already have you, whether or not you have anything or not. So a person who want, who's really ambitious to be rich can be a poor man. A, a person can be in bondage to mammon and not have any. A person can be in bondage to things and not have any things. So if you're really if you're poverty stricken and you've got to be rich, you're falling into temptation and a snare. If you are fortunate and competent and hardworking and you've got to be rich, you're setting yourself up to fall into temptation and a snare. God don't never change. He's God. All right. So the book review that I'd like to put forward today is a book called Authentic Ministry by Michael Reeves. Authentic Ministry by Michael Reeves. Now, for some reason, well, there's there's uh, there's several interesting things here. I've just uh, recently uh, at Christ Church, I've recently begun a series of sermons through Second Corinthians. So, I'm going to be working through Second Corinthians for maybe maybe a year. I, I don't know, at least half a year. Uh, and as we work through Second Corinthians, uh, I I've tentatively titled the the whole series. Um, authentic ministry. So, because that's what Paul is defending his ministry. He's defending his himself against the charges that he was uh, 
abusing his position and so forth. And the, the letter is all about what genuinely authentic apostolic ministry looks like. So I titled the series Authentic Ministry. And because I did that, someone asked me if I had read or I was keying off of Michael Reeves' book authentic, titled Authentic Ministry, and I know I hadn't, I hadn't heard of it. And uh, I, but I really like Michael Reeves' stuff. I've I've um, gone through some of his uh, books before. Really enjoy it. And so I got that book and started listening to it. Uh, and it was one of the books I listened to. And I'll just share a little quirk uh, that it's it's happened with. I think this, this was the third Michael Reeves book that this happened to. And it's and it's no doubt uh, a problem somewhere in the metadata world of what's in somebody's file somewhere. But when I listen to, when I listen to books, audiobooks, I listen to them over, uh, primarily in my truck, uh, driving here and there around town in two, three minute increments. And uh, it's, a, it's just a really helpful uh, way to get through certain books. So I've got hard copy books that I read, and I've got digital copies that I read on my tablet. I've got audio books that I uh, read. So I do, I ingest them different ways. So when I, but when I, uh, listen to a Michael Reeves book, for some reason, the screen in my pickup truck displays a picture of Michael Moore, the uh, leftist filmmaker. So Michael, Re is the, but don't, if that happens to you, don't be deceived. Michael Moore is not Michael Reeves. He's, this is not, uh, a side gig that he's doing or a, a pen name situation. Now, what uh, onto the book. Authentic Ministry is basically a uh, a pep talk or an encouragement of uh, to young ministers or uh, older ministers who have become perhaps um complacent in their calling. Uh how Basically, here's the here's here's the fundamental challenge. I think there are um, other things that come into this, but the fundamental challenge is what uh, most Christians approach as nourishment and food, food for the soul, encouragement for the soul, sustenance for the soul. What most Christians do is they approach their their Bible reading and their um, time of prayer and their Bible study and all when when an average Christian approaches those things, he's doing it because he wants to walk with God. He's doing he's reading the Word because he wants he wants the the Word to he wants the Word of Christ to dwell in him richly and so on. Ministers, preachers particularly, have the additional factor of uh, all these things being vocational. There is what they get paid for for doing. It's it's their livelihood. So, um, on the one on the one hand, if someone really wishes he could read, oh, I wish I could sit in the library all day and read these big fat books of theology. I'm just hungry, hungry, hungry. Uh, that, yeah, that's a that's a good desire. But once you're in the calling, once you, once you're in the routine of sermon prep and preparing for Bible studies and. Uh, um, working through things so that you can counsel people. It is really easy, frightfully easy, for ministers to become professional cooks who don't eat very well. Um, they, 
they prepare the dishes and they put them out there, but it's not something that they experience directly themselves. And what Reeves' book does is just a good bracing challenge to ministers to uh, come to the come to the tasks that are in front of you as Christians first, and not as professionals. This happens to be something that you're paid for, and you should be paid for it, and it's biblical that you be supported. But it is vital that you not fall into the trap of thinking that you're a professional like a lawyer or a dentist or a doctor or a banker. That's not what this is. And uh, um, Reeves' book, a very quick read, very accessible, uh, a very, very good, able uh, wake-up call. Uh, so if you're a minister, if you're in ministry, and you feel like you're, you've gotten into the doldrums, um, this is a good book. Pick it up. Mm-hmm.